Sadly, Father, thank you for this. It's time to get together on this long weekend that we provided. Lord, you uh, the Old Testament so that when I'm working, we can focus on you and uh, celebrate all that you have provided in the past and also look forward to the things in the future. Lord, uh, ask that you be with Dave. I know you with the Holy Spirit. We share your word for your purposes for us and the others that we will touch. Thank you for this time again. Amen. Just in a compliment, but it threw me off a lot, Jay. Yeah. Um, so obviously, I wasn't here last week. What all did you? What did Pastor Bob present? He did a uh, Romans to Galatians oh. parallel thing. Really good. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we covered two books in four seconds. <laughs> so, so the gauntlet's been thrown down. <laughs> you know, this morning we're going to cover, we're going to dive into chapter 6 of Hebrews, starting at verse 4. And uh, I've been so overwhelmed with thinking about Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 on that I forgot to pick out a psalm for this morning. Uh-oh. So I'm going to let you guys pick the psalm this morning. What psalm would you like to open with? One that's happy and cheery and full of encouragement. Ah, six. My Something challenge. After the flood. Something after the flood. Something, yeah, after the flood. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? Can make me pick after all? Psalm 27. Who'd like to read Psalm 27? That's a great song, by the way. Good choice. The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked eat my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. <coughs> Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilions. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. 
Deliver me not over into the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breed out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say. Amen. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. You picked a perfect psalm, actually, for a lead-in, encouraging words, um, stirring words in part, but uh, a resolute faith in God that he will uh, protect us and deliver us and keep us safe. So, uh, we're in chapter 6 of Hebrews, and it's been um, two weeks, I think, since we were in, uh, last looked at Hebrews. We had just introduced um, in, uh, the, the idea of the, uh, the fourth warning passage that we see. Um, this is all about uh, the high priest this section of scripture is. And we'll see the high priest uh, detail both in um, his, who he is, his qualification, which we saw in chapter 5, uh, the role that he performs, and ultimately the sacrifice that he makes on our behalf. So that's the direction we're headed, but tucked right in the middle of this is this really stern warning passage. And uh, usually people that write commentaries on Hebrews, uh, this is the what they're measured by is how they handle chapter 6 because a lot of people struggle with this this isn't actually the most stern warning there's a much scarier one later on but people seem to to skip over that one and trip over this one Hmm. Um, what do you think is the purpose of warning passages now that you've had a chance to kind of look at at Hebrews and I presented it as a sermon that the author of Hebrews is using a, a sermon type format in, uh, in presenting the, the message. It's not just a theology uh, lesson. It's a lesson designed to uh, encourage us to grow. So it's supposed to affect the way that we live. And tucked in here are these warning passages. So what do you suppose the intent of, of the warning passage is? I shouldn't ask such stupid questions. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just, I'm just wondering: is, if, if Pastor Bob got up on a Sunday morning and preached like this, would you come back? <laughs> right? We we have trouble hearing these kind of messages today. Um, he, you know, having established the preeminence of Christ as our perfect high priest, is he's basically this chapter basically saying, if you don't pay attention, there's nowhere else to go. That's exactly it. If you don't pay attention, there's nowhere else to go. That's really the crux of this warning message. And uh, so, I guess we're done for the day. In the bottom. Uh, but that's that's essentially it. And that what's being presented is who Christ is and what he's done for us. And if you reject Christ, there is no, no other alternative. There is nowhere else to go. 
uh, in that, we're not supposed to uh, come into salvation and stay babies, right? We're supposed to come into salvation and grow up in Christ. That God has an intention and a purpose in our lives. He didn't just save us uh, because he wanted nice mantelpieces, you know, in his trophy rack. Um, he saved us for a purpose. And so we need to, to keep that in mind, that we've been, we've been bought with Christ. And that that was for a specific purpose in God's in God's mind. So I'm going to read through this passage. We're going to take a look. Uh, we we read through uh, the first three verse four verses of, of uh, chapter six, or first three verses of chapter six. I'm going to read down through uh, verse twenty. And then we'll jump into it. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away... It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, as an end in every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, in, in chapter 5, we see uh, the high priest as, um, as part of the administration of God's kingdom, uh, the qualifications of that office defined. And at the end of that, we, uh, we see that the author of Hebrews makes this detour to address his audience personally. So he's moving from his theology lesson 
and then he's addressing those that he's speaking to personally. He says, you know, I could tell you a lot about the high priest, but you guys aren't ready to hear yet. In fact, you're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat. And eating meat is important because that's where we discern uh, what good and evil is. He says, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then he goes on to this uh, introduction to what he means that these guys are baby Christians. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. What's he talking about there? The elementary teaching about the Christ. Anybody want to offer anything up? What is the elementary teaching about Christ? The gospel message. The gospel message. There's death, resurrection. And death, resurrection. And yep. And, and, that's, and that's exactly what he says here. Um, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's talking about that process that we enter into um, with God in salvation about instructions about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So it's basically kind of looking at the whole of, of Christian doctrine in a broad sweep. Doctrinal stuff. So he says, you know, you should know the doctrinal stuff. But this is elementary teaching. It's not just a matter of what you know up here. It's a matter of what you know in here. Because head knowledge without application only gets you so far and that's where he's making a division in what it means to grow up. The difference between what's in your head and what's in your heart. So it's a, an incredible distance from here to here because sometimes it's a lifelong journey of maturity to actually know in your heart, like we read in the psalm, of what David's uh, petition was to God was that he would actually be able to be in God's presence. Because he trusts God for his whole life, right? That's more than just a head knowledge of what David had gone through. It was the, the, the cry of his heart. So that's why whoever picked uh, 27, and I just heard, I didn't see, picked it, came from back here. That's perfect. Because that's the introduction of what, um, what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, let's not, let's not just talk about the head knowledge of doctrine, but let's see how it applies to our life. And he makes a statement. He says, you know, if you don't apply this to your life, um, he, he then goes on to this warning passage. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, what do you think when you hear that? I'm kind of stuck on this head and this heart knowledge thing. Okay. Do you put that in different terms? Because to me, the heart's an organ. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Good question. So let's talk about the heart. So um, when we when we try and understand God, we uh, always fall short. 
because we have a limited, finite understanding of reality. Right? So when we're born and time starts ticking for us, the way that we experience reality is kind of a linear progression of moments. And um, where, where God is, is that he created all of that. So he's above it, and we can never understand it. We can only understand it from, from a human perspective. So the reason I bring that up is because what we will do is we will bring language in. It's called phenomenal language. We look at the phenomena of reality, and we use language uh, that, of what we observe to try and describe who God is and what he, he is and what we are, right? Well, so we use the, the word heart because um, in human understanding, it's like the center of your being. Without your heart, you cease to exist. And so people can actually be brain dead and still alive, right? And that they talk about pulling the plug on them and, and things like that. So we understand, you know, from our perspective, we think the mind, the brain is the, the central organ of the body. But in, in some very fundamental respects, the heart is. And so that's why that language is used. Now, did they understand medical science when they coined this idea of the heart? No, they didn't. They didn't understand it the way that we understand it today. And people might argue that, well, without the brain, the heart can't do anything. Um, so you see that there's an association between uh, the mind, the brain, and the heart, just from a physical, purely physical perspective. But we understand that it's central to your being. Without it, you very quickly cease to exist. And that, um, so the heart, being the center of a person, um, and we understand that people are more than just the, the flesh and the bone, right? So if that's all we were, and some people think that's all we are, that we're just an accident of chemistry in a universe that uh, occurred for no good reason, in fact, because they couldn't explain it, Carl Sagan said the universe is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. That the universe is eternal, right? So from a naturalist perspective, they have to recognize that uh, reality as we see it and experience it um, is, is it. That's what it is. And we are just kind of a, a freak accident or a, a probabilistic instance in that progression of moments, right? <clears throat> So some people would say that's all we are, but I would bet you that everybody in here believes that we're more than just that. That uh, when we talk about the heart and issues of the heart, we talk not only about the issues of physical reality, but we also talk about the immaterial part of reality. We talk about um, the soul, your, the seat of your emotions. We talk about um, your will, your moral seat. What you decide and choose is right or wrong in any instance that guides your actions, right? We talk about the motive behind a thought, right? All of that, and you've seen me draw it up as a progression where at the very, at the very beginning of the progression, and I know you've seen this drawing, and I'll, I'll go here again. we got the heart, um, and from the heart, uh, you have... Uh, Thoughts, actions, um, habits, and destiny. And I'm going to, this is a short 
out of the, the uh, content of the heart comes the issues uh, of the day, what that which you think about and dwell upon. And that which you think about and dwell upon, you make a choice. And that leads to an action. And an action, repeated over a course of time, becomes a habit or a way of doing things. We all know the way of the world, right? That's the set of habits that make up the world. And a set of habits make up the destiny. And what people are really concerned about is they're concerned about their destiny. Um, if you weren't concerned about your destiny, you probably wouldn't be here. If you would probably be out, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? You would already resolve the destiny question. There is no point. Um, so therefore, get as much comfort and, uh, and electrons flowing the way you want them to flow in your brain right now, because that's all there is. And there are people that live this way, and we just, you know, have a lot of descriptions for them. Um, but the point is, is if you want to affect what's out here, you need to pay attention to what's in here. And that's that's the seat of um, your will, your your which is uh, your moral um, compass and your desire, your motive to work uh, affect that. It's the, the part of you that is immaterial that we believe as Christians has a life beyond the physical. So it's the immaterial part that continues on into eternity. Yes? And scripturally, in wanting that definition of heart, mm -hmm. you have the Old Testament talk about the gut for the emotions or the bowels. Right. And then you have a lot said about those who have head knowledge and no application. Right. But the best verse I think scripture gives us is Paul in Ephesians 1.18 when he is breaking into this prayer dealing with the same issues. Right. And he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Right. And to the ancients, the heart is what tied those emotions and the guts and the knowledge in the head together. Right. And put everything into action. So right. So when I look at the immaterial parts of man, so the material parts of flesh and bone, the immaterial parts, we, we talk about the heart, we talk about the soul, we talk about the mind, we talk about the will. Um, these are all immaterial things. They exist outside of my, my physical reality. If all I believe is I'm electrons firing, none of this would make sense or have any context. But it does. And what I was, and basically what you just said is that the, the soul or the emotive part of us uh, is the gut, the belly, right? In the mind, we think that's the top part. And what pulls it all together is the heart. Again, it, you see that as a model from physical reality. Where does the will fit into this? It is, uh, it is how the uh, intentions of the heart become actions, become affected. And so... That's where I believe the author of Hebrews is directing us to pay attention. That it isn't just a matter of the mind, um, and it isn't really a matter of what we might feel about it. Really, the issue is that God is concerned about is the content of your heart. What's the state of your heart? Um, so isn't that kind of like the Pharisees had the problem where they may have intellectually known all the stuff they're supposed to be doing yeah. and been correct about, you know, basically about God, but then they didn't live it and they didn't 
Right. Hard, they did. Right. And it's 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 very uh, possible. And we all know this because we observe what happens in in Washington D.C. That people can live in a way that is inconsistent with what they state they believe. They can state what the content, what they say is the content of their heart, and yet live totally different than that. So that you would say, no, I don't really believe that that's true. And, and that's what Jesus said about the Pharisees, mm -hmm. right? He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Um, you know, you put on this great show, but the inside is dead. There is no life there. Um, we see the same thing in the letters to the churches in Revelation. You see a progression in those le letters uh, to the seven churches that goes from uh, having an effective head knowledge and execution of the will, but a loss of the true reason for doing that. It goes from there to degenerates to embracing bad teaching, to embracing uh, world habits, embracing Jezebel, um, to uh, actually being an empty shell, and finally getting to the point where you're not only uh, have gone so far from the heart of God that you are neither effective and refreshing in God's kingdom or healing in God's kingdom. But rather than being hot or cold, you are now lukewarm and you have no value and he spits you out of his mouth. That's what happens when we deviate from the heart of God. And that's what we see is, is really what the issue of the heart is. That's, if you look at the letters to the churches, he starts with the heart. Right? He starts in, in Ephesus, and he says, this is the issue, that you lost your first love. Right? So we have this idea of the issue of the heart is one of love, and that we've got Cupid shooting arrows and things like that. Really, the issues of the heart, it is about love. Um, but it's a much deeper and, and fundamental aspect of who we are. And so God is concerned about the heart because this is the part that we understand um, eternity springs from. Right? So when I say eternity springs from the heart, it, is, it springs in one of two directions. It springs towards life or it springs towards death. And that seems very black and white, but it is black and white. Uh, the springing towards life is uh, springing towards the author of life, actually having a part in the author of life. That would be having uh, Christ in your heart, right? So we, we tell this to our kids, you know, you need to be born again, you need to have Christ in your heart. Well, what does that mean? That's, a, that's language that is phenomenal. We don't quite understand it. Um, but it has to do with which, which way your, your heart is going. Is it going towards life and God, or is it going against God? And what happened is, there was a corruption of the heart that occurred. And God cared about that. He says, that corruption of the heart leads to eternal separation from me. When you uh, spring towards death rather than springing towards life, there is no future in that. In fact, the destruction is so thorough, it's going to be um, like eternal fire. And he gives us, again, phenomenal language that we can understand. Any of you who have ever been burned know how uh, 
horrific of experience that is, can you imagine uh, the eternal part of yourself being in that place of, of fire, of eternal uh, torment? God doesn't want you there. He wants you to spring towards life. And he, he cares so much that he provided a way to do that. That's the, the gospel message, the elementary teachings about Christ. And in the middle of that is salvation. Right? God does something effectively on our behalf that allows us to, rather than springing towards death, we now spring towards life. And he does that in such a sure way that he makes sure that we're on the right trajectory towards him. But it requires that we participate. Because God is also, um, in his justice... He will not take someone against their will. And that's really important to understand. Is that we still have a will in all of this. Um, and that's why I list out here one order of salvation. I would say that there are eight separable aspects of salvation that we need to consider. And that what this passage is talking about is it's talking about a couple of these different aspects. Yes? Now, on, go back to number one election, God yep. choosing. Yep. Is he correct 100% of the time? Pardon? Is he correct 100% of the time? Is God correct 100% of the time? On his election, on his choosing. Everyone he chooses does accept him, or he just, he's picked out the ones that could accept him. Right. All will. Right. So, um, how much free, uh, free will do we have? God's election is your question. <laughs> and uh, having gone through that uh, a couple times in different lessons, um, what I would like to state is that apart from God's election, whether um, he chooses based upon his foreknowledge or he predestines uh, limiting our free will, and that limiting can occur in multiple fashions, it can be that he's going to take me kicking and screaming, which would be uh, in opposition to my understanding of who God is, he's going to force you to choose life, even though he knows that that's the best for you. If you're adamantly not wanting to choose life, he allows that. And evidence of that is angels to tell. So there is evidence that there are those that will not choose life. And we are told that there is when the final judgment happens, there will be those that did not choose life. So to deny that that is a, a reality isn't according to Revelation, right? But it's the heart of God that he chooses those. He said, well, in order to make it possible for you to experience life, I'm going to have some experience death. Uh, I believe that that's inconsistent with the character of God as revealed. So... I'm going to say that at most it's limited uh, free will, uh, or at least it's limited free will. So I would say, no, he doesn't take you against your, your will. He doesn't cause you kicking and screaming to go. However, the point is, and the reason I put this first, and, you, and this is an arguable point, you can put this later, is that I believe that apart from God, salvation is not possible. And that's what I'm saying here. That in order for salvation to proceed in any fashion, God needs to be there. He needs to do something. Because we are in a state where we are already lost. And that's what 
what uh, John 3.17 tells us, right? He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He came into the world to save the world. Right? So I, it's not a matter of um, can I be good enough on my own and end up in life. But I don't see any biblical evidence for that. And I don't see any physical evidence for that. I don't see anywhere in the universe that life comes from non-life. And that's one of the arguments for creation. Right? So that's why I put this first. That it requires God's intervention on our behalf. And that is a choice that he makes. So, so then you would say then that God did not elect everyone. Uh, so... <laughs> So you're looking at election in a predestination view, that he predetermines um, what a person's destiny would be, right? And some would call that uh, double predestination. He predestined some to life, and he predestined some to death, um, in which case he didn't choose some, and he did choose others. And there are verses in the Bible that are hard to deal with on that issue. Um, we should probably make a separate lesson just to, to visit that. Uh, my point here is not so much to resolve the issue of predestination or foreknowledge. Um, all, I think there are aspects and merits to both, and both of them have uh, a significant consequence. So, for example, uh, when it says here, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, that's a pretty significant statement about who that person is, right? And then they fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So in a double predestination uh, view of God's election, that person would not have been chosen for eternal life, although they may have thought they were. And that's a scary thing. Can you think something about God and his choosing you that is not true? That's what double predestination would imply. That a person could want to be saved and have tasted of that and not in the end be saved. Right? Um, that's, that doesn't seem to be consistent with the nature of God, in my view of theology. So I would, when we get into that aspect of God's choosing... There's a lot of things to consider. And they affect, actually, how we view this. But I, I, the point I'd like to make is that it does require God. It starts with God. We can't choose to be saved. God has to choose to save us. And then we understand that we're saved by His grace. And so I put two words up here, prevenient and effectual. And, uh, again, this is my theological bias, that... I believe that in order for us to even bother to pay attention to God, he has to in some way restore us from the fall. That is, it's a grace that comes before. That's what prevenient means. That he actually bestows upon us some aspect of his grace that would cause us to even pay attention. Um, an aspect of this, we could think of it as like general revelation. That the fact that all experience the general revelation of God is a result of God's grace that comes before. He makes sure that we understand and appreciate a sunset. Right? Or a sunrise. That's part of what goes on in the heart in God's grace to prepare us for the choices that we need to make. 
So I would say that the grace of God comes uh, before we even get to the point where we actually respond. He has to first choose to intervene and then uh, provide grace, you know, unmerited favor in order for us to be saved. And that that is effectual. It accomplishes that which God intended to do. It's not going to miss the mark. That God doesn't do anything frivolously. That every element of the universe is in exactly the place that God put it in. And in that sense, nothing is non-determined in God's view of reality. He determined it that way. So that way we call the uh, decree of God. Right? That's what effectual grace means. Then I believe that there's a calling that occurs. So part of what we're going to be doing next week and the week after is I'm going to be teaching you what is the gospel and uh, how do we share that in a way that doesn't cause people to just do this and run away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's part of God's calling. It's where we participate with him in both his general, specific, and effectual call. So he makes sure that we hear. He woos us. That's what calling is. And that this is all part of salvation. At some point after election, grace, and calling, I believe, comes conversion. And regeneration. And you can flip these upside down. I don't care what your theological position is. I believe there is a rebirth that occurs that the result of the corruption of the heart is not one that can be mended. You can't come in with uh, Leaf's auto body repair and give you a new heart and make it good as new. Everybody knows that if you get in an accident, that car is damaged and it will always be damaged. In fact, when you go to sell it, you have to declare that it's been damaged. And if you don't, it's a violation of the heart. right? Because it is not new. It is not, it will never be not corrupted by a result of that accident, no matter how good you patch it up. So it's not an issue that you can make this acceptable. Rather, it has to be completely created new. And that that's the process of regeneration, that we are regenerated, reborn. And that our participation in that is conversion. Now, some people would say you're reborn before you get converted. Some people say, you know, you're converted and then you're reborn. It doesn't matter. There are both parts of salvation. But there's a repentance step and there's a faith step. And these are both active, by the way. This is passive. This is passive. This is passive. This is passive. This is active. That means that um, we are the actor in that. So we participate in repentance, we participate in faith. We understand that salvation also involves justification. And that as a result of the corruption of the heart, we are in a position that we could never be acceptable to God. So he has to, in some way, resolve that unacceptability. And Paul talks a lot about that in Romans, for example, about how we are justified. And we could do a whole lesson on that. Then there's another part that we participate in. I would say that justification is a passive activity. But sanctification is an active activity. We participate in it. Maturity, which is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Assurance, which is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. 
perseverance, which is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. So he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about something that has occurred in the or my ordering of things after all of these other things have occurred. And then the final step of, of salvation is glorification. So you can think about it in position as we are positioned um, in relationship to sin, because sin is what causes the corruption of the heart. Down to this point right here is all about how God has met and removed the penalty of sin. And this step here of sanctification is where God is, uh, through the work, active work in our life, and our participation with Him, is overcoming the power of sin. So, 1 through 6, um, the penalty of sin, 7, the power of sin, and finally, in glorification, the presence of sin. Sin will actually be removed and will no longer be an issue when we are in a glorified state with Christ in His home. Because sin has no place there. It is completely removed. While we're in sanctification, we're struggling with the power of sin in our life. The old man and the new man. But when we get here, that old man is gone. Does that make sense? So this is explaining from a salvation, you know, what salvation is in, in reference to uh, how we stand in the presence of sin. Penalty of sin, power of sin, presence of sin. And that what the author of Hebrews is talking about is he's talking about um, the power of sin in our lives. And if he's talking about the power of sin in our lives, he's assuming everything above that. He's assuming that God has chosen us, that his grace has come before and is effective, that he has called us, that he has uh, participated with us through an active part of conversion, that he has uh, regenerated us, and he has justified us. And that's why you see such strong language here. It says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who's once been enlightened? What does that enlightenment mean? It's when the, the, the light of who God is shines into the darkness. Enlightenment, right? It's that moment when, through God's grace and His calling, you say, Oh, I see who I am. I see who God is. And what it causes you to do is it causes you to repent. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that when He brings light onto the sinful place that you find yourself in, and you see yourself caught there, and you see who God is, you turn from what you know is true about yourself to what you know is true about God. And you ask Him for His grace and pardon. And you ask to participate in the life which He has chosen you for. Right? So we have repentance and faith as a result of being enlightened. Yes? Not, not saved then. Not, uh, are you saved just because God shows you your sin? <clears throat> but you're saying, I'm, I'm asking... He's not including the, the, the saved. Well, how can you how can you not be saved and experience the Holy Spirit? That's that's what you if we, if we progress through this, you're going to see that yeah. it goes all the way down 
to this point here, and that we're wrestling with sanctification. Now, this is an issue where one person would say, once saved, always saved. Well, is salvation a one-time event? Or is it a sequence of events? And if it's a sequence of events, what happens if you don't get to the last stage? <laughs> That's the question, right? Yes, sir. What falls into the category of the unpardonable sin, which people want to yes. define themselves. Yes. But Jesus defined it as full revelation of him. Yes. Before those leaders who clearly understood his his claim, his power, and who he was, and yet concluded the exact opposite. Yes. So what you're talking about is someone, and, and we find it hard to understand. We find but it hard you to can have a full understanding of who Jesus is and still reject it. And that's why I say it's not just a head issue. It's a heart issue. Because what's happening here is if you classify these the people that he's talking to is unsaved. They are unsaved, but incredibly knowledgeable. So are they observing what the Holy Spirit is and does when you say partaking? Ah, are they just yeah. observing? And so, when you taste, is that just a teeny bit? Is that just a Well, sip? okay. <laughs> These are the kind of questions that should be coming up. So I will give you the six classic views how to interpret this. Okay. The first view is that this is hypothetical. It's for, for rhetorical effect. And that um, his audience is saved people and he's using hyperbole, the author is, in order to cause people to pay attention to maturity. But that it's purely hypothetical. The judgment is not real. That would be one view of how to interpret this. Another view would be that he's talking to unsaved people. It's pre-conversion Jews. So they have an understanding of the cultic practice and what the high priest was about and had participated in that but have never, never made the commitment. In that sense, they're associated but not uh, converted. Uh, another view would be that this is a covenant uh, community view. Covenant means that the author here is talking about a whole class rather than an individual. Remember when I talked about, uh, uh, well, maybe I didn't, I've used the idea of corporate versus uh, personal in regard to different concepts in the past. So some people would say this is a corporate view of the unsaved, that they will be rejected. And that if, so he's not talking specifically to this audience, he's talking about a, a state of the world, right? That you have two classes of people. So uh, you could interpret this as a covenant community view. You could also uh, view it as a true believer under judgment view. So we understand that believers undergo a judgment. That um, we, Jesus pays attention to how we live our lives. We can be saved, um, but live badly. And we understand from different passages of Scripture that at some point, Christ holds us accountable for our action. Not in the sense of eternal judgment to damnation, but in the sense of rewards. 
And that's where the blessing and cursing ideas come in. And you see some language of blessing and cursing here. And that, um, that that's what that's about. Uh, so you would be saved, but you would lose relationship and earthly reward. And so people would, would use the language, which is also used in Hebrews, about those that were lost in the desert. Right? Were they still God's people? Yeah. Uh, but because of their unbelief, they did not enter into the Holy Land. Now, were they lost for eternity? Some would say, no, they just lost a blessing. They were not cursed in the sense of damnation. They just didn't get the blessing. So they were cursed in, in an earthly perspective. So that would be one view of this. These are true believers, but this is about the judgment that you will stand in this life. And I'll give you some of the, the reason why that comes up. It says, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So people would use that language there, and they'd say, oh, this is, this is to true believers. That's how I resolve that language about the Holy Spirit and enlightenment and, and all this, but it's talking about the judgment, not uh, damnation judgment. Another view, so those are the first four views, another view is it's a phenomenologically true believer view. That means that it's true believers who have lost their relationship and can no longer expect salvation. That's the one that scares everybody. Can you wiggle out of God's hand? Are you stronger than God when it says that those that he has in his hand cannot, cannot be lost? So we look at this language and we say, wow, this is talking to true believers. And there is a point, if you choose through your will to reject God, that he will not force you into his kingdom. That's a scary view. Then there's the uh, phenomenologically unbeliever view, which is that uh, these seem like genuine believers. They look like a duck, they walk like a duck, they quack like a duck, but it's not really a duck. Right? Just looks like one. The phenomena is, man, they look real, but they're not really real. Because if they were really real, they would persevere in the end. So now you see some of the theological viewpoints that come into how you interpret this, right? One would be a once saved, always saved, five-point Calvinist position. One would be a, man, you better be quaking in your boots. You better understand the fear of God because you could be lost at any moment, an Arminius position, and you see everything in between in how the classic uh, arguments for interpreting this, this passage are. Now, I know you all want me to give you the right answer, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the whole, uh, when I studied Revelation before, the thing that I wrestled with was when he talks to the churches, he talks about perseverance. And in yes. Revelation... Uh, it's all about overcoming. Three, five, yeah, it's the overcomer. And then in Revelation 3, 5, he says, if you overcome, I will erase you from the book of life. That's right. In other words, so, it's possible to get erased from the book of life. Yes. Yes. And that's what makes people really uncomfortable. You mean, I could lose my salvation because of my unworthiness and 
my inability to complete my part of the contract. I thought we were in So if you look at it as a contract type relationship where it's bilateral and both parties need to meet their end of the contract, if God decides not to meet his end by not choosing you, it doesn't matter with how faithful you are on your end. If God is faithful and you're not faithful, then that contract has no binding force. Right? Or you get into the penalty phase of the contract. Right? Um, so that's when we view salvation in this light, it causes us a lot of concern. So I'm going to ask you, where is the strength of your salvation? It's a he says, even if we're not faithful, he is faithful. He's faithful, but is he faithful to deliver us if we're not faithful? That's a question. I take you to Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 6. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Paul saying, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a process. You are saved now. You have eternal life now. But you also have eternal life in the future. You have salvation in the future. You're saved now. You're saved. Your salvation is yet to come. And that this is a really hard thing for people to understand. This tension of now but not yet. And that's what the author of Hebrews is helping us work through. A now but not yet. God revealed himself to humanity in the Son. But it wasn't the glorified Son that came. But it was the humbled Son who came for our justification. And to enable us in sanctification to give us power over sin. And that we were saved and the final note of history was written in his last breath, he had conquered death. The final note of history in this universe was written, but it wasn't yet. It still was to, to, to come at some later point in our understanding of the procession of moments we call history. So we have, this is what an eschatological view, a view of the future in God looks like which is why it was so classic when we picked Psalm 27, because it gives us a hope in God based upon who He is in our present struggle today. And this is where I say that we are at. And this is what the author of Hebrews is shooting at. And he wants, regardless of where you believe that uh, if it's possible for you to lose your salvation... Um, I, I've met people who I was absolutely certain they were saved. I saw that trajectory through conversion and regeneration, and I understood justification. And I thought, man, I have another 
I have another brother, I have another sister that I'm going to see in heaven. And then the way that their life played out, I had to rethink that. But guess what? I don't see the heart. God sees the heart. And in that sense, I need to give him uh, the role of God as judge and not take it. But I need to pay attention to my, the condition of my own heart. And I think that's why this is stuck right in the middle at the beginning of the passage on the high priest. Who he is, why he's qualified, what his role is, and what he's done. We need to really focus on our life, that this is God personally speaking to us. That's why he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered, and in still ministering to the saints, already but not yet. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When you say that's the purpose of communion, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Yes. And yet most people gloss over that. And, and people do gloss over it. So there is important to understanding, to reflection. And it's not that we are to totally divorce ourselves of the head. Rather, it needs to, we need to be whole. And that in being whole, we come to the, the communion table, the table of remembrance of who Christ is and what he's done for us with an incredible fear of God. A love for him that would do such an incredible thing for us. Being totally lost, he died. For us. To save us. That's where we need to be. Every moment. That's what it means to grow up. In Christ. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and close here. Because I know I went over. And I got chastised. I was supposed to get you out of here ten minutes ago. <laughs> I apologize. Just the one who came before me. Uh, Lord. We just thank you for this time. This is a difficult passage. And we just even touch the surface of it today. We haven't mined the depths of it, and we'll probably have that opportunity as the, the future unfolds if you allow it, Lord. But Lord, um, please impress upon our hearts the, the gravity of this message, the work that you're doing for us and in us. Um, Lord, help us to be um, joyfully participating with you, dwelling to desire to dwell in your temple all the days of our life. Lord, we ask that you uh, protect us as we go from here, that the world desires to pull us as far from this as it possibly can, that we know that we are under attack, a spiritual attack. Lord, we ask that you would uh, protect us, uh, that as we are in this world, that your presence and your peace would always be with us, and that you would guide us always to you. Lord, uh, we ask that you provide for us uh, as we struggle in this world uh, all of the days of our lives. Um, that you would uh, give us our daily bread. And Lord, uh, we ask uh, with, with great joy that you enable us for service in your life. And we thank you for serving us so, so incredibly. Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as he presents the message. 
Uh, and that you ask, I ask that you bring us back next week if you tarry. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.